Grab your popcorn and snacks. Find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How is everyone tonight? Welcome to California Haunts Radio. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so, and we've got a great show lined up for you today. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. Uh, that, and what that does is that creates a situation where if you, if you think you might have something creepy or paranormal going on in your house, give me a ring, find me on Facebook, find me at CaliforniaHaunts.org, find me at... Um, Find me at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. Find me on Instagram. I'm Ghost Gal on Instagram. Check out my Instagram. All right? Check us out on TikTok, California Haunts. We're everywhere. Twitter, California Haunts. No, I'm sorry. Twitter's Cal Haunts. Too many Cal Too many haunt things. But uh, you can find me anywhere. And even my personal name is, 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 an, is an open thing for Facebook if you, want it, if you need help. That means we can get to you anywhere. Okay? We also have branches and affiliates in the state of Washington. We have affiliates in Oregon. We have affiliates in Nevada. We have affiliates in Hawaii that can help you out if you if you have a problem. So come check us out. You know, we could probably work with you and figure something out. All right. Anyway, uh, again, my name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. And uh, this is California Haunts Radio. And if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube and you like what you see, uh, we're always looking for subscribers. So there's a little... Uh, Ghost down the bottom right-hand corner with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That is our flying mascot. And if you hit that button, you will be privy. Well, you're privy anyway, but I mean, you'll be notified when our new videos come up or if we have something coming up, like tonight's show, you would know like a week ahead of time. Also, if you join our meetup.com, which is over at California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team Meetup, it's another way to be privy to everything we do because we, we run all our events through there, including these. So you get no, you get notice of this like a week ahead of time. So it's kind of cool. All right. And Meetup is free of charge. YouTube is free of charge. So what, what have you got to lose, right? Go to YouTube. There's almost 400 videos over there for you to peruse. And they're all different topics. That's what makes it fun because we don't know. We don't do just straight paranormal stuff like tonight. Tonight's a non-paranormal night. I'm a history buff. Okay. I am a history buff, and uh, I had a brother that, that that took that was an archaeology major in college, and I I used to hang on everything he researched, everything, everything he was doing, loved it. So my guest tonight, David Brody, has been on before with us, and uh, tonight is going to be interesting. He sent me some photos that are related to his new book, The Serpent Oracle, and these photos are eye openers. It's, it's something I didn't expect in the photos, so I'm real excited. That we get that that he gets to come on and that we get to share all this with you, okay? So that being said, without further ado, let me click over here. I'm going to bring David on. Hello, sir. Good evening. How are you? Good. How are you? Good to be back on your show again. Thank you. It's been a while. I'm so glad you came on. Thank you. About what, a year and a half or so. Is that was that right? Yeah, it's been about a year and a half since you were last on. So tell us about you. For the people that don't know about you, tell me about you. So I'm one of those um, attorneys who always wanted to be a writer. And about 10 years ago, I finally gave up my law practice full time. And so I write full time now. So I've written um, 17 novels. 14 of them are in the category of let's call them fringe history or hidden history or revisionist history, basically looking at things like exploration of America before Columbus and Atlantis. And today we'll talk about uh, ancient serpent worship, but sort of dusty areas of history that mainstream historians don't go to generally. And then I write um, modern day thrillers triggered by that particular aspect of history. Um, and so it's similar to things like National Treasure, or Da Vinci Code, that kind of genre. Um, but I've been able, fortunately enough, to give up my law practice about 10 years ago and do this full time. So like I said, I've got 14 of the books in this family. Um, I try to write two a year. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my kids call me a rock nerd. So I spend a lot of time out in the woods looking at ancient stone structures, looking for evidence, looking at formations or whatever I, you know, whatever we can find that we think might be evidence of some kind of hidden footprints uh, about the history of America. So when you're doing your research, like, like for this book, how long does it take you to, to do the research for a book like this? So the research, um, it could take, you know, it could take as long as four or five months, depending. Um, I tell you what, the internet, people ask me all the time, you know, why are you able to write these books, all this fascinating history and 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, you know, we didn't know about this stuff. And the simple answer is the internet makes all this so much easier. Um, it used to be that you know, a researcher in, I live in the Boston area, a researcher in Boston would stumble upon something and a researcher out in California would stumble upon something and, and never the two would meet. And now through the beauty of the internet and email and whatever, we, we communicate so much faster and more efficiently that all these, what we thought of as one-offs, independent little pieces of, of strange research, now they're just individual puzzle pieces that we can put together so much easier. And so to answer your question, um, the research doesn't take nearly as long as it did when I started 15 years ago. Um, it tends to be ongoing as I write. Uh, so the quick answer, two or three months, I tried to do a lot of traveling. It was affected obviously by COVID a little bit, but even that you can, you can virtually travel almost any place in the world these days. Um, it's not quite as quite the same as being there, but you can really, um, jump on. You know, what was it with those, uh, those headphones? My kids got me one, the, 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 the uh, virtual, yeah. me, the, what, what's it called? VR, virtual reality. Yeah, exactly. I can go anywhere. The other day I wanted to do some research, a cathedral in France. So I put the things on and there I was like, wow, I can, you know, I can write a scene about Chartres Cathedral in France, not having ever been there, but it took me 10 minutes, you know, as opposed to 10 days. So it's amazing stuff. It is amazing because I remember I found the um, video that, that sells this in VR about those guys that, that climbed the Grand Canyon and they decided to do the whole length of the Grand Canyon and they were hiking it. That was spectacular. Yeah. It's, I mean, you can, you can go almost any place. You know, I, when I was a kid, I used to watch Star Trek with my father and of course they had the simulator, right? You go in this, it's the same thing almost today. It's, it's really amazing. Um, and it makes, you know, back in the day when I first started doing research, you had to go to the library and do the microfiche, right? And you mm-hmm. wind the thing and you wait for you know, the one newspaper article. It, gosh, my gosh, it's so much easier to do now. And um, I think it's made researching easier, but it's also made research so much more efficient. And it allows people like me to, instead of doing one book every three years, to do two books a year is what, what I'm doing. Um, yeah, good, good for the world. It's, it's a good time to be alive. How do you decide on the topics? You know, I keep thinking I'm eventually going to run out because, you know, I sort of went down the rabbit hole. The first book was re- relating to the possibility that the Knights Templar, the vestiges of the outlawed Knights Templar came across in the late 1300s to America, 100 years before Columbus. And that was fascinating. I found lots of evidence about that, artifacts and sites. And mm-hmm. I said, well, maybe maybe there's more evidence I haven't found. Maybe there'll be a second book. And I wasn't even sure. And I said, well, what about other things in you know, the Western part of the country that I didn't know about? And that was the third book. And and I just keep, you know, I just keep thinking eventually I'm going to run out. Um, but readers oftentimes send me ideas. People will call me after a show like this or mm-hmm. email me after a show like this and say, hey, you know what? We have this interesting mystery in, in our neck of the woods or this artifacts and you might want to take a look at them. And it just sort of feeds on itself. But um, I keep thinking at some point I'll run out of topics and it hasn't happened yet, thankfully, because I really enjoy what I do. And I think my wife would be pretty sick of me if I stayed home and didn't do it anymore. So, so good for me. But um, I, I'm I'm amazed. I'm on the fifteenth book right now in the series that I've continued to find information. Um, again, the dusty corners of history. I dig around down there, and I, you know, sort of desperate need of a of a change of clothes and a shower. But I, I'm, I'm I'm having a lot of fun down there. Well, your books are all fascinating, Thank and you. they're all on fascinating topics, and I enjoy them immensely. Thank you. You know, and this one, tell me about your latest one, because that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I'm going to flash a photo of it. There you go. Thank you. So um, so this one was prompted by um, the whole uh, contradiction, I guess we'll call it, about the the modern world, our our negative obsession with snakes and serpents. And it's brought on by 
you know, by the church and the whole Garden of Eden story and how the snake was evil. But in ancient times, um, most ancient cultures worshiped the snake and considered it a sign of, of wisdom and procreation and godliness often. You know, the, the, today, the, 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 even the American Medical Association today still has the, the, you know, the rod of Asclepius, which is a symbol of knowledge around the staff. Um, so even today, we still see it as a positive sign in some ways, but generally speaking, it, it's a negative thing. But you, if you go back, again, most ancient cultures worship the snake. And so, so you know, why is that? What's, what, what's this whole thing? Is the snake good? Is the snake evil? Is it both? What's going on there? And that was sort of the question I was trying to answer when I dove in. And, you know, again, I went down that rabbit hole and started looking at some of the really ancient cultures in the Medi in the in Mesopotamia and that in that region of the world um, to figure out why they worship the snake. Um, one of the fascinating things I found was not just in Mesopotamia, but all over the world, many ancient cultures use these these boards on the heads of their child, their babies to shape the heads of baby children. Thank you. There it is. You can see it there to elongate the head and slant the eyes and also affect the brain chemistry. So what they were trying to do was make these children more serpent or snake-like. And then also what it would affect the, the pituitary gland in, in the brain and have these kids, cause these kids to have visions or hallucinations or whatever. The idea being that the gods would speak through these children because in their mind, the gods were snake-like and serpent-like. And so if they can make the children snake-like, that would bring them closer to being godly. And, 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 and this is what was going on. So I saw this not just in Mesopotamia. Mm -hmm. We see it in the Yucatan. We see it in uh, even, even in post-World War II uh, France for a long time. A, a major city, Toulouse in, in France, had this practice a lot of the peasant families would would do this kind of thing to their children and elongate, squish the skulls. Um, so it wasn't just isolated. It was, I won't say it was worldwide, but it was in a, lots of different places around the world. Ancient cultures who had this veneration of the snake would do this to their children. Um, fascinating. That, well, like you said, the veneration of the snake, is that because they believed in the snake or, or they saw something else that caused them to want to do this? So I think what it was, so if you go back to the, to the book of Genesis, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, not everyone believes that the, old, the, the, the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament are the word of God, but a lot of people do. And, and, and yet a lot of those same people don't read a, a lot of the Bible. So we just sort of pick and choose and, and go to Sunday school and a lot of it doesn't get taught. But if you dig in deep and start reading some of this stuff, there's some interesting stuff. So, for example, Genesis 6, 1, 2. I'm going to quote, and it came to pass when man began to when man began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them as wives. OK, so what's happening is this the, the angels, the sons of God took human women as as mates. OK. Um, and if you look at this more closely, the sons of God, the angels or you know, coming from above, coming down, the fallen ones, are they angels or are they aliens? You know, which, which one is it? Right. So I think some of the ancient peoples, these stories come back, in the ancient people's mind, these were these were actually, they came down from the stars, they were potentially aliens, not angels, okay? And so when you, and, and a lot of times these were serp considered serpents. So there's a fascinating figurine, I think I sent it to you, it's a, it's a, it's like an alien figurine uh, it was found in Iraq, um, the city of Ur. It's at the Iraq Museum now. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a god figure, and it's a, it's a human body, but a snake head. Do you have that one, Charlotte, there? It's right there. Uh, no, not that one. Oh, the other one. There we go. Hang on. There we go. Yeah. We go. So, so this is an ancient figurine of a, of a, of a god figure. Um, but again, it's an alien, it's an alien figure, uh, a, a serpent head and a human body. But these ancient stories, when you see it in the book of Genesis, you see it in the uh, book of Gilgamesh, some of the, all, all the old uh, legends and, and myths, they often talk about these fallen ones, the Nephilim, 
meaning mm-hmm. to fall. And, and the question is, are they, are they, did they fall from grace or did they fall from the heavens? And if they fell from the heavens, were they angels or were they literally falling from the heavens? Were they aliens of some kind? And they came and mated with the human women and had these, these offspring, which are part uh, serpent and part human. And I think that's what we're looking at here. And, and that's why so many ancient cult- cultures wanted to uh, emulate the the gods, the serpent gods, and squish the heads of the babies. And we see figurines like this. Um, but so I think what was going on is, and I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I think a lot of the ancient legends in the ancient cultures were that there were serpent-like uh, gods or aliens who came down and 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 mated with the human women. So and they were they were superior. Obviously, they 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 knew things we didn't know, and so they were they were venerated and of course and then eventually emulated. Right. But when you think about this, I mean, you know, mothers now, my mother at least, had concerns, you know, uh, with, with us being babies about turn, turning your heads, you know, because their their heads are soft, right? This is why right. they were able to do this. That, that yeah. looks painful. Yeah, Charlotte, is there another one that, that I think the, the head of the, yeah. um, let's see, where is that? Which one is that? I got an elongated head right here. Yeah. So right, you go from this and then you go to this. There we yeah, go. So, so this is, I think, I think that one is from the Isle of Malta. Um, you know, Nefertiti, the Egyptian uh, princess or queen, is a famous one. I mentioned Yucatan. I mentioned France. Um, again, this one's the Isle of Malta. There are dozens of them of the, on the Isle of Malta, uh-huh. uh, which is one of the ancient, most ancient cultures we have. But you can see. So, to answer your question, yes, it, it's very painful, and oftentimes these these babies, these children, were were you know, deformed by this and emotionally stunted, intellectually stunted. But what what they were trying to do was to push these children into the into the priestly class to, mm-hmm. to have them have visions and hallucinations and, and speak through the gods. And, and that would give these children status. They may have been peasant children otherwise. Uh, but the idea being that these elongated skulls change the chemistry in the brain somehow and and they would have these visions and the thought was that they were speaking through the gods and i I know there's like when you look at some of the egyptian pharaoh like for instance king tut right some of these pharaoh skulls were like this too right a lot of them apparently it was very widespread and and again you we always emulate our gods right so Mm -hmm. so why would we do this because that's those are the people we emulated you know you we dress like movie stars <laughs> back then. You wanted skulls that were were more serpent-like because that's what the gods looked like. Wow, that's just crazy. And again, it's the fact that it's on either side of the Atlantic. You know, it's not just in one area. Mm-hmm. Tells me, you know, fairly widespread. It's not the kind of thing that independent groups would 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 invent on their own mm-hmm. unless it was a widespread belief. It just didn't happen. Absolutely. You know. It's a sort of an odd thing to happen independently, unless unless there was some reason for it. That's so fascinating. But to think that people would squeeze their their kids' heads like that—I can't even yeah. imagine. I can't. Even and imagine. again, in, 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 even as late as post World War II, there's still pictures you can find on the internet of a, a fairly urban area, France. You know, we're not talking third world. Toulouse is the city in southern France. They the peasants still did that to their kids, as a, they thought it would make them smarter or something i don't know it does make me wonder because when i was in europe um i won't say how long ago <laughs> very long ago in hungary um they had they used to um leave the baby carriages on the street and go shopping they just park them there and my mother couldn't get over how the baby the babies were so quiet but this but i'm not saying this is what they did but i mean this kind of makes a little sense about the babies what they would do is, my mother found out through my cousin, is that they would take, um, they would take, oh, what was it, something that, that was an opioid, like some flower that was an opioid, and, and crush it up, and then wow. and place it on the tip of their um, pacifiers. That makes sense. <laughs> and these babies would stay quiet. So it makes me wonder about, because, you know, that the, they were into, so into herbs back then, you know, back in the ancient times. That in order to do this to their babies, that this is probably what they did was was they put something you know in their mouth to 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 knock them out or quiet them out so they could do this process. Yeah, and 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 so again, I mentioned we said this in the Yucatan, and of course the the Quetzalcoatl god yeah. 
uh, is the feathered serpent. So again, that's a snake-like figure. So we see evidence of this snake-like thing, not just in the heads, heads of the baby. Uh, mm -hmm. I think I sent you a picture of the uh, of the Ohio uh, serpent. Yes, mound. yes. This this was that's really a Native American one, and, and um, that blew me away. Asked, this is fascinating. You asked about my research, so my wife and I drove out there uh, this spring. This is a obviously a, a drone uh, image of uh, of a mound in southern Ohio. It's about a quarter mile long. It's called the Great, the Great Serpent Mound, and you can see it's a it's a snake with a tail and the head and you know and, and the and curving back and forth. Um, it's it's amazing thing. It goes back probably about there's there's conflicting um, carbon dating on it. It's either a thousand years old or two thousand years old, but it's definitely pre-contact. Mm -hmm. um, but even the Native Americans had this veneration of the snake, apparently, because here we see it. Um, you know, so not just in the Yucatan, not just in Europe, not just in the Middle East, but mm -hmm. even in North America. Well, it stems to reason, though, because, I mean, when you think about even the birth of Christ, the Native Americans here knew about it. About the birth of Christ? Right, about the birth of Christ. So, I no, mean, I, a, lot I of that, a lot of that got around the earth, you know, with all these beliefs. Um, yeah, so that goes back to the, the original question to me, which is, you know, what made me start writing these books. Right. And, and, and I think the, the answer, the short answer to that is, in my mind, the ancient peoples were smart enough and educated enough and technologically advanced enough to be traveling across the oceans. Yes. And, and we sort of don't believe that, you know, in our mind, it was, you know, nothing happened before Columbus. But I think the evidence more and more is showing that the ancient Phoenicians, um, who were today are the, they come from what is the modern day Lebanon, but the Phoenician empire was about in the 3000 years ago or so that they were amazing seafarers and navigators. They navigated by the stars and had boats two or three times as big as Columbus had. And um, they were sort of the merchant Marine of the ancient world. But, um, and we know that they were traveling out the Mediterranean up the Atlantic coast to the Southern part of England to get tin to mix with, copper to make bronze we know that for a fact we don't know where all the copper came from a lot of copper came from cyprus but at some point they ran out of copper on cyprus and many people believe many researchers believe that the phoenicians crossed the atlantic and came to north america specifically to the great lakes area to get copper because there's a lot of float copper in the great lakes and the native americans when our pioneers went out there said yeah you know you're not the first people here the ancient people came and took copper um, and so the Phoenicians, I think, were traveling back and forth um, before the time of Christ, after the time of Christ. You know, we're talking 3,000 years ago, give or take. And I think last time I was on your show, we talked about the possibility of Roman explorers coming here about 2,000 years ago, right after Christ. Um, there's just a lot of evidence. There's a lot of sites and artifacts and coins and whatever scattered across North America that you, you have to sort of figure out what it's doing here you can't just ignore it as a historian well look at the maps that plato had you know when, when you think about that i mean he had maps of literal maps of the world right and that you know we we won't talk too much about tonight probably atlantis you know plato right, was right, right. plato's big thing was about atlantis and and i did a whole book about that and the thing that caught me really grabbed me about that was plato via his analysis and his arithmetic basically dated the cataclysm that destroyed Atlantis as mm -hmm. 11,600 years ago. Mm -hmm. And today we know the science is exactly right. 11,600 years ago, there was something called the end of the, of the lesser dry ass period that, that that's exactly when that would have happened. And right. so for him to get that date so precisely correct, and he was writing 2,500 years ago to get mm -hmm. that exact date, you know, that's to me, that was like, wow, that's that's, a, that's quite a dart shot. If you throw in a dart against the wall right. to hit it hit so precisely, he must have known something because mm -hmm. you don't that's just get that lucky that, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. I don't that's believe true. in that much coincidence, but he had the 11,600 year old date spot on. Right. Um, so like you said, he had ancient knowledge. It was passed down. Um, it just it's just it's hard to get most academic types to open their minds to these kinds of possibilities. And so when they see evidence like that, they just sort of slough it off and say, Oh, lucky guess. Right. Um, right. Right. I, I haven't won enough water. I haven't had enough scratch tickets that I've won to believe in that much luck. 
and that's not not, not the world I live in. So I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer by trade, so I train to evaluate evidence and weigh evidence and talk about credibility of evidence and critique evidence. And if I were to say that to a jury, they'd be like, no, 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 no. That's not the way the world works. And so to me, that's how I look at this is we got evidence here on the table. It 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 can't be thrown away. Let's mm -hmm. let's analyze it and and there must be a story behind it. It, it has to be something was going on there. These artifacts are here. And there mm -hmm. has to be a story mm -hmm. and I, I have the story wrong. I might have it right. I don't know. I'm not saying I have it right, but I, I am saying there is a story and mm -hmm. for historians to say, yeah, no, we're, we're just going to ignore it. Nothing, there's nothing to see here. And that doesn't do it for me. Absolutely. Now your book is, is based on a true story. And what story would that be then? Uh, no, it's not based on, no, not a true story. No. Okay. So it's based on, so all these books, including the Serpent Oracle, are based on this idea, some kind of okay. ancient history. So in, in this particular case, actually, actually there, there is a little bit of truth in it. In, in, in my book, there's a, I want to make sure I get it right here. Hold on I stand corrected. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, there, so I, I tend to do a lot of stuff involving the, the Knights Templar and also the Freemasons, because the Freemasons sort of in, descended from the Knights Templar, many people believe. I'm not a Freemason myself, but I find that, you know, it's a secret society. It's interesting stuff. Right. But there was a rogue group, a rogue group of Freemasons that started in the Philippines mm -hmm. and eventually spread to California and Arizona, New Mexico. And they called themselves the Grand and Glorious Order of the Knights of the Creeping Serpent. And so they used the, the snake as their figurehead, the, you know, the creeping serpent. Uh, and they, they actually tried to take over a lot of the lodges in California. And they were a very um, strict and rigid branch of Freemasonry. Uh -huh. But again, the fact that they chose the, um, the serpent as their figurehead uh, fascinated me. And I dug deeper into it. And it, it turns out if you, if you look at the, in the Old Testament, like at one point, you know, Moses has a staff and it turns into a snake. Uh -huh. And then there's the whole thing with the brazen serpents where... Um, the Israelites are punished by, by getting bitten by snakes. But God says, if you, if you look at this snake that Moses sets up, you, you know, you'll hear yourself. And the mm -hmm. snake in the old Testament is considered to be sort of a represent representative of God. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the new Testament, it's a representative of, of the devil and it's evil. And, you know, the snake is bad. The snake is bad. Um, but in, in, in Freemasonry, we see this creeping serpent thing. And if you go back even further into the Knights Templar, there's some interesting symbolism with some of the Templar's secret seals. They, they have one secret seal. Did I send you a, there, thank you, a brox. This is one of the Templar's secret seals. This fascinates me because the Templars are supposed to be the army of, of God. They're, they're a religious society, even though they're fighting monks, but they are the arm of the, the fighting arm of the church. And yet their secret seals, one of them is this pagan deity, this guy, this Abraxas is his name, A-B-R-A-X-A-S. And you can see he's half man, it's a, th a third man, the body, the head is a, is a rooster and the mm -hmm. feet are snakes. So he's a combination, put aside the rooster for a second, he's a combination of man and snake, which is what we were talking about earlier, this idea of these these alien serpents breeding with human women and creating this hybrid type serpent man type thing. And, and that's what that secret seal is of the Templars. So what, you know, why are they paying homage to this union of the serpent and the man also that, you know, what did they know? What, what did they discover in their travels? What secrets did they learn? I think this is one of them. I think, again, this is their secret seal. It says Templar, uh, Templi Secretum, the secrets, the Templar secret. And there it is. Um, again, there has to be a story behind why they are using on their secret seals a pagan deity that's half snake, half human, a third human, a third snake, a third rooster. The rooster, mm -hmm. by the way, is a symbol of the sun. That's why we have the rooster. It announces the sun every morning. So that's what the sun is. It's sun worship as well. But for the purposes of our discussion today, it's the snake that's important. So how, how, how do we fit this into what we know about history? It, it doesn't fit in easily. So now we have to start looking at alternatives. And one of them is the idea that the Templars 
were aware or learned of this whole idea of ancient snake worship, serpent worship. This is, this is absolutely incredible. So as you started to put this together, was one thing lead, um, was it one of the cases where one thing was leading you to another? And you just kept yeah, that, going? That, so that's how that's how I, I do these. I you know I got talk about going down the rabbit hole and I start right, you know, right, looking right. at I, I try to find three or four different things. So I found the the rogue group of Freemasons, the creeping serpents, and I found the the idea um, start of the Isle of Malta with those with those skulls and the idea that this ancient culture on on this you know, pretty secluded island, Malta, right. had this tradition of serpents and head shaping. Um, and also it happens in, in the Yucatan and other places. Mm -hmm. And so that was the second sort of ingredient in the story. And then the third ingredient was the 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 mound, the, the serpent mound in Southern Ohio. Like, so the Native Americans had this as well. And then you add to it um, the stuff in the Old Testament with Moses and the fact that the serpent became sort of the symbol of God back then. And then there's also a really cool thing with a character from the um, from the Old Testament called, her name is Lilith. I don't know if many of your listeners are aware. Are you aware of Lilith, Charlotte? Do you know who she is? Um, I've heard stories about Lilith, yeah. yeah. So Lilith was Adam's first wife. Right. People don't realize that, you know, everyone thinks of Adam and Eve, but the story is that before there was Eve, God had given Adam a different wife, Lilith. Right. And Adam didn't like her because she was too progressive. She was too liberal. She was too, um, she wasn't subservient enough. She during apparently during sex, she liked to be on top, and he didn't like that. He wanted a, a woman to be subservient. So he said to God, I, "I don't want Lilith. I want someone more subservient." So, so Lilith was banished to the you know to the to hell with the demons, and and God gave Adam Eve. But Lilith is always symbolized with the, the snake. Because you know she's the temptress and that whole evil thing, and usually when you see a picture of Lilith, I didn't send you that one because it's didn't want to show up. But it's, she's always almost always naked with a snake wrapped around her private parts, basically. Um, but she's fascinating too because this goes back to you know the original wife of Adam was was associated with the snake and was not considered evil, although Adam didn't like her. But um, the, really, the first feminist, I guess, was what we call her. Uh, yeah, um, where Lilith is concerned, uh, that's what a lot of people don't realize because, you know, it depends on what, you know, what what religion you're, you're reading it from too, because you're, you're not going to hear about her. But I mean, it, it, it's a unique story in that you know it goes way back, way like you say, way, way, way back and in, into the beginning of the Bible. Right, and Lilith. So Lilith, if if you happen to watch the uh, the old Cheers sitcom on yeah, TV. Right. Yeah, that's what he was. Lilith, because she was the, a, a, a strong feminist, you know. So it was a perfect name for a feminist character in a sitcom, because um, as I again, Lilith was the first, the first feminist. Mm -hmm. But you don't, you don't really, you don't learn about Lilith in Sunday school. Um, no, I don't. They're they're in um, one of the one of the scenes in my book. I have. I don't think I sent you the picture of this. Something called an incantation bowl. This is something that. Um, in the early centuries, so the second, third, fourth century AD in Israel, they, the the uh, Lilith was believed to be um, she, she was she was feared by many wives in ancient Israel. They believed she would come at night and do two one of two things: either um, steal their husbands and, and cause them to ejaculate, uh, basically seduce their husbands, or steal their babies. And mm -hmm. so they. Um, they would make these bowls and they have an incantation, a prayer on the bowl, and they'd bury the bowl at the doorstep. And the, and the incantation would basically say, Lilith, stay away by the power of God. And this, is, this would keep Lilith out. But the other interesting thing about Lilith was, um, it would say, Lilith, be gone. Um, the word um, uh, Lilu, Lilu, Abi, um, I think was the incantation. And that's the, that's the, the root of the word lullaby was Lilith be gone. And so a, a lullaby is, of course, a, a song we sing to a baby, but the root of lullaby is the incantation, Lilu, Lilu, Abi, Lilith be gone. And that's the root of that word. I thought that was really interesting. But um, again, it's all, this Lilith, again, is considered evil because of this association with feminism and snakes and 
being, um, you know, less than subservient, which back in the day you wanted your women subservient. Mm -hmm. But yet there were statues of her. So like you say, that meant that somebody was worshiping her or worshiping some, some kind of religion near that, right? Right. There was a big, um, saw this even in, there's a really good book called the uh the red tent by anita diamant a lot of book groups for the last couple of decades have read that it's basically a story of when abraham meets sarah and once a month the women of that family you know abraham had like four wives or whatever the women would all go to the red tent for their for their menstruation period so for one week they would live alone without the men and the men weren't allowed to go in there and when they were in that tent they had their clay figurines of their fertility goddesses the old goddesses before yahweh before you know the the god of the abraham isaac and jacob the, before the male god and the women still had their their goddess figurines in the red tent and the men didn't know about it um and it's a really interesting story uh eventually the men find out and they're they're outraged because they they think it's a violation of god's uh of Yahweh's commandment that there should be no other gods before him, no no token, no uh, no idols, right? No false idols. Mm -hmm. But the women, Sarah, especially Sarah means princess. Uh, Abraham's wife Sarah, his first wife, the princess, um, can, insisted on continuing to worship these fertility goddesses, going that go all the way back to ancient times. Um, but this conflict that we see between men, the patriarchs, trying to keep the women subservient mm -hmm. and the women trying to sort of break out of it and you know recognize the importance of fertility and you know whatever um independence that that you know that that tension that conflict goes has been going on for millennia sure 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 jerry says she believes that the pagans worship uh, lilith you could call them pagans, yeah. But basically, the so if we define paganism as people who, who don't believe in sort of the Judeo-Christian right. dogma, yeah. So, um, yeah, Lilith, you know, Lilith is very popular today amongst those people who reject Judeo-Christianity mm -hmm. because again, she's uh, many feminists. So she's in many ways a figurehead for for feminists. So what do you think? I mean, as far as that, I mean, there's always offshoots of, of religion, you know, what people believe. But what do you think would draw people so much? And I, I know we have Lilith. But what do you think would draw people so much to want to worship the serpent? Because the serpent, you know, is always in the eyes of, 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 of religious people. It's evil. Um, yes. In the eyes, in the New Testament, we, we do have that connotation. So I think a couple of things is going let me answer your question. I'll go back to that. So in the ancient times, the serpent was, you know, it, re, it reproduced itself. It sort of regenerates itself. It, it lost its skin and then got a new one. So this whole idea of rebirth and, and mm -hmm. people thought that the serpent had magical powers because of that. And also it's historically been associated with wisdom and knowledge. Remember Cleopatra surrounded herself with the serpents and eventually committed suicide by letting the asp, you know, bite her and she died. Right. But she believed in the power of the serpent. Um, going going back, so that the 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 Garden of Eden, the whole idea of knowledge, right? The serpent presents Eve and Adam and Eve with the the, the temptation of knowledge, and and God says, "No, I I don't want you to have knowledge. I don't want you to fall to the temptation." And this is basically the church saying, "We don't want." mankind to be educated we want mankind to be sort of passive and and just have faith and follow the teachings of the church if you get sick we don't want you to go to the to the doctor to the to the healer to the woman the crone the woman out in the woods with her herbs and her plants no no we want you to go pray and put money in the collection box for the priest and mm -hmm. heal yourself that way because that perpetuates our our power mm -hmm. and so the church the, the church never wanted the church never wanted us to come out of the dark ages they were perfectly happy with people being ignorant and uneducated and just blindly following the teachings of the church eventually you know europe sort of emerged from that and mm -hmm. and that's when the church sort of 
started even being more strict with the Inquisition and all that. But that's what that, all that tension comes. But it all goes back to knowledge. The church doesn't want people to have to know that the you know the the Earth doesn't isn't the center of the universe. Doesn't right. want people to know all the all the stuff. Doesn't want people traveling across the Atlantic to to explore new worlds. Doesn't want any of that. They want people to sort of stay home in their villages and 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 be good little Christians. And so knowledge is not necessarily a good thing if you're if you're uh, if you're a religion that likes to so control your 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 flock. Mm -hmm. So again, the, the the snake represented forbidden knowledge, knowledge, and knowledge was not considered a good thing in in the eyes of the church. Okay, it makes a lot of sense. And you have another uh, picture of a statue you sent me. See what this is. Yeah. So this is another example. This is the ancient. This her name is Asherah. This is the ancient goddess. Um, but you can see she's holding snakes. You know, this is this was in in I believe that's Mesopotamia, um, the, it, Egypt, the Aztecs, the Khmer of Cambodia, India, Native Americans, um, Semitic peoples. Almost everyone back then worshipped the snake in one one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And again, you can see her. This is Asherah. This is probably three four thousand years ago. Uh, but there she is holding the snakes. Yeah, I mentioned Cleopatra earlier, but it was it was fairly universal. I won't say it was totally universal, but almost you know a majority of ancient cultures back then venerated the snake. Does this also go back to uh, Greek mythology with Medusa? So Medusa, yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed bag with Medusa, but probably a better example is the uh, uh, Oracle of Delphi, um, okay. which is um, I think the word Delphi actually means Python. Um, because that that mountain where the Oracle of Delphi um, lived and and preached from um, had a bunch of snakes on it. So the Oracle of Delphi is very closely tied to the snake. So I got another example of snake worship in the ancient world. The Medusa thing, uh, that's more that's probably more closely related to, to Lilith, I would have to say. The okay. idea of of this mixed bag where the, the snake is both powerful and and you know wise and powerful but also dangerous and you know tempting and the temptress and all that stuff so that that's almost that's a very good example i didn't, didn't use that in the book i probably should have Charles. that's a good suggestion but the idea of sort of the the contradiction of the snake is it uh -huh. is it good or is it evil and it's both in many ways turning men to stone yeah with the stare yeah yeah, yeah. So there's a great uh, TV commercial on recently about I forget what it's for. Let's be. She has her sunglasses on and takes them off. And a very funny commercial with the a modern day Medusa. So it's all fascinating to me. So these societies that I mean, there's still people that do this. You know, even now, I mean, you come across them sometimes. I don't know YouTube, you know, or or TikTok. They'll they'll pop up and there's these guys that worship the snakes. They're like these guys that go into the the, the room of cobras and then they're, they're you know and they're doing their thing with the cobras. Yeah, so, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up because I almost forgot to talk about it. Fascinating, and I encourage your your viewers to check these out. Do a um do a Google search um, snake worship in Appalachia. And there's a lot of churches, uh, fundamentalist churches, mostly in Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, in that range area, where they have these fundamentalist churches where they believe there's a, there's a passage in the New Testament that talks about um, handling snakes. And they believe that that's basically a test of their faith. And they have these, these uh, poisonous snakes, rattlesnakes usually, and they dump them out of the bag. And they start writhing around on the floor and they go into church and these people will, will start dancing and praying and they'll hold the snakes and lift them up and put them at, you know, face to face with the snake and almost dare the snake to bite them. And they're not defanged. It's not like these are, this is not a, you know, some kind of huckster. There are people who die every year, die, literally die every year from these snake bites. And so a lot of the states down there have tried to, to outlaw the practice, but of course it's freedom of religion. And so these videos are fascinating. You see these people and, the, and they're dancing and they're almost in a trance. And, but once in a while the snake will bite them. And then the question is after the snake bites you, do you want to go to the hospital or do you want to pray and let God heal you? And of course the peer pressure, if you're at church and everyone's there to test your faith, test your faith. Right? So a lot of people say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to 
go get this, the you know the anti venom the anti venom serum and they um they die yeah uh, or, they, or they lose fingers or but right. a lot of them actually die but right. it's a fascinating thing where these people they literally hold these snakes up and they you know these these rattlers and they and they dance with them and pray with them and I would think that the people that lose just just lose fingers become revered you know revered within that group because they survived yeah I mean they're you know they're like um you know battle scars right they're 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 the, they're coming back from war they've they've they've, they've looked the devil in the eye again the snake is right. the devil right, right, and right, right. this old bat age old battle the snake versus God and if you pray hard enough to God and and people surround the you know as these people are, are they get bit they they they, they sit them down and and, they're, and of course they're sweating and they're shaking and and their face is going numb and and people are praying and singing and and it's this whole big tug of war between the congregants pulling on the the victim one way and the devil the snake pulling the other way and um these videos are amazing um but and this is a very very poor areas of course of appalachia where there's there's absolutely nothing mm -hmm. besides you know people people do go to these churches almost every night it seems like um, but yeah they take this very they, they take that one passage very literally that uh you know to test your faith you need to handle snakes it's, it's just it's all fascinating to me uh benjamin wants to know about the the, the snake being in the logo for the medical field yeah, it's a it's a symbol of, of wisdom. Um, I don't know if I give you that. Do we have that image or not? It's an easy image. Anyone can find that. Um, the rod of Asclepius. It's the staff, of, and then the snake around it. But the snake is an ancient symbol of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And and again, this goes back to the the medical field. The medical professionals have always been at odds with the church with praying as opposed to healing. So. I've always wondered if that partly is a little bit of a, you know, the 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 the, the doctor is sort of standing up to the church saying, you know, middle finger to the church. <laughs> we we know we know the truth about the snake, and mm -hmm. it's it's not a bad thing. It's it's a symbol of knowledge. Somebody else says one of my neighbors is my neighbors are Hindu or Hindi, and they have a snake statue. Yeah. So the the snake. Um, the snake worship goes india is a big area of snake worship the the khmer which are uh, the people of cambodia have a whole legend where i think it was an indian prince uh well actually hold on i think i have it written down here let me see if i can get this right i don't want to get it wrong um i think an indian prince or indian princess i forgot um mates with a snake mm -hmm. um and and the 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 product of this snake and the indian prince or princess i forget which one uh leads to these the people the khmer people of cambodia that they believe they're half snake and again this goes back to the ancient memory of some kind of snake-like figure coming down and mating with the human so i'm, I'm guessing it was the indian prince who came and the uh -huh. and the and the local woman so again the an outsider a prince or a god with serpent qualities comes and mates with the local woman and now we have this the resulting people um in this case the khmer of cambodia but in mesopotamia and, and elsewhere they're they're called the um the the uh anunnaki is what is uh, is what they're called in the i'm sorry they, they they're called the um the nephilim sorry they're the product of the anunnaki and the humans so mm -hmm. The other thing you know, I'd like to I'd like to say too is that I know my mother used to have you know religious icons in the backyard statues, and Mary was always standing on a snake. She was always stomping on them. The really, Mary. I know I didn't know that. Yeah, hmm. she had a real she had this big one that would sit in the corner, and yeah, Mary had her foot on the snake. Well, again, that's consistent with the whole idea of the church trying to demonize a snake. We've got the Virgin Mary, the you know one of the most important figures obviously in christianity and she's kicking the snake beating the snake stomping mm -hmm. the snake because the snake is evil this but the snake is knowledge you know we don't want you we don't want you learning anything no we just want you to just tell we'll tell you what you need to know mm -hmm. don't go learning anything we'll we'll tell you 
Well, I mean, I mean, as, as Christians, we're, we're taught that it's evil. But when you look at these other religions, like like Jerry po pointed out, that, you know, the 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 Hindu and, and all these other religions, it can't be that evil if they're worshiping it. Right, and it wasn't evil. You know, this this is the point of the whole all the research did. It right. wasn't evil until Christianity came around. So even in, in in the Old Testament with Moses, his staff turns into the snake, and then later on. God says, "If it's called the it's called the, uh, the the brazen serpent. If you if you come and you look upon this snake on a pole, mm -hmm. we will heal you." So again, it's almost like the snake is the manifestation of of God or of goodness or healing or whatever. And so, right. um, in the Old Testament, the snake is generally considered to be powerful. I won't say benevolent, but but wise and a a, um, a, a tool of god mm -hmm. and so generally positive you know obviously snakes are you know they're, they're venomous so they're not all positive but right um, it's only when we get to the story of adam and eve that it, and, and i'm sorry it's only when when the christianity comes along and sort of takes that story and runs with it that we that we that we start seeing the the real negativity of it maurice this is in hinduism the snake represents uh, primarily represents rebirth death and mortality more, mortality or immortality? Let me see. She says mortality. Mortality. So rebirth. Yeah. So rebirth yeah. is the whole the whole skin coming off. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't I don't know why death so much, but the the rebirth thing makes sense. Right. And even with the ancient Egypt, when when you look at um the, the headdresses, like even like we'll say Cleopatra, God sure. forbid, Hollywood, but I mean, what what was on her head? It was a snake. Yes. Yeah, symbol again. The symbol power. Obviously, the snake was incredibly powerful. Right. So that was that was obviously something to be admired, um, worshipped. Um, yeah, the the Egyptians paid uh, paid a lot of uh, homage to the snake. No doubt mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what did you find the most interesting uh, of your research for this book? What struck you the most? You know, I mentioned I mentioned the thing in Appalachia with the people with the snakes. That, that right. just to, to to think that that's how it happens in modern times. Um, I was I was really um, surprised at how widespread the head shaping of the infants was, and 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 I guess it makes sense if you know if you if you were born into the peasant class back then, mm -hmm. and you wanted a better life for your children, which is a you know a, a very basic human desire but you you're not gonna you know you're not gonna move out of whatever you are if you're if you're you know if you're a carpenter that's what you're gonna be right. but one way to get your kid to sort of move into the priestly class and the priestly class is the most powerful class is is to somehow shape uh, to change the chemistry in their head so that they have visions that that are they're actually talking to the gods somehow mm -hmm. and and this is what they were trying to do is, is they want to have the kid that talks to the gods that the priests come along and say, okay, you've been touched by the gods. We're going to make you a priest. And now that's a, that that's a whole different lifestyle for your children. You know, that, that takes you out of the peasant class and puts you into the priestly class. And we see that in all across, not just one or two cultures, but in many different cultures, everyone trying to do that same thing. I was, mm -hmm. I was really surprised to see that over and over again. Yucatan, Europe, Isle of Malta, Mesopotamia. We see that over and over again. That is um, interesting. And yeah. here's the whole thing related to what you're saying is Benjamin says, I have, I have read that in Egypt, the cobra on the head is related to the pineal gland. Yeah. You get into the whole thing with um, uh, the Kabbalah and the chakras. And yeah, all there's a whole another aspect of that that I just didn't get into it that much because you know at some point you're writing a, a novel and you don't right. want to get too deep into into that kind of stuff but yeah there's that whole aspect which i can't really talk about because i didn't research but definitely that's part of it as well but like you say this is still going on and, it, and, that's, uh, and I, I agree with you it's so fascinating because it is still going on in the modern age that these that there's people that worship the snake yeah the um the fact that they were still doing it in France, you know, right up to World War II, I was very surprised by the, you know, just the peasant belief. And that, as is the case in many of these 
beliefs, people don't really remember why they why they do it. And and I find this with the Freemasons as well. People people think that the Freemasons, um, you know, have all these ancient rituals and all these secrets, and right. people think that they. Um, I shouldn't say that. I, I have found that oftentimes they don't realize why they are following these rituals or what the rituals mean. And oftentimes, like I would say to them, you know, you guys have these rituals involving snakes. And they'll say, no, we don't. And I'll show that to them. I'll say, yes, you do. You have a, you have a whole brazen serpent ritual. And, 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 and I'll, I walk into a Masonic lodge and I did this the other day and they, they wear their aprons. And oftentimes the, the little belt that they have that holds the apron together it's mm -hmm. two little snakes sort of intertwined like this, but they're snakes. And I say, look, you got snakes right there on your aprons, all you guys. And I'm like, oh, oh, we didn't, like, why is that? And like, well, it's, again, it goes back to this whole idea that, you know, you there's a there's a hidden symbolism and all this stuff that has been lost. And and if we sort of dig down and look at it and say, okay, why, you know, why is there a snake on your apron? Mm -hmm. you know, there has to be a reason for that. It wasn't just because... You needed to class. You could do anything, any kind of class for work. You need a snake. Um, you know what? What's going on with that? In in, um, in Roslyn Chapel, famous Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, where the Da Vinci Code takes place and stuff. There's a famous thing called the Apprentice Pillar. Mm -hmm. One of the and and um, along the base of the Apprentice Pillar, there's a bunch of snakes. And and people don't really look at that because it's the base. I look at this massive pillar. But why are there snakes around there? And again, it goes back to this idea of the Rosin Chapel has a, a lot of you mentioned earlier pagan imagery. Right. And of course, a snake is is pagan, but it's a it's a Christian chapel. So we've got these Christ. We've got even though it's a chapel, we have snakes. And right. So right. Something's, you know something's going on there. And I was just thinking of the whole "Don't tread on me" thing that the United States has. With the with yeah. the eagle that's stepping on the snake. So the, one of the early um, posters that Benjamin Franklin created was um, a snake divided into I think it was thirteen pieces, but it may not have been thirteen. But each piece mm -hmm. of the snake was labeled with one of the states, and it was a symbol of the his idea of what was going to be the United States was going to be, and he was using the snake again, the snake being the symbol of both power and knowledge. Um, but he had wanted, this is back in the 1950s or 60s, I'm sorry, the 1750s or 60s, mm -hmm. way back even a decade or two before the revolution, he was creating these posters um, for the American Revolution with these snakes. Absolutely fascinating. You know, it's always fun to have you on. You are so, you're, you're so informative and I, and, and I always learn so much and, and so do my listeners. Thank they you. In fact, they're the ones that asked to get you back on. <laughs> yeah, I, I I have a lot of fun with this. I, you know, I as much fun as I have writing these stories. I think researching them is even more fun. Um, I bet it is. It's it's just a fun thing to go down. You know, go dive down into a rabbit hole and spend a few months there and and try to you know figure out what's going on. So I, again, I I I like to say I I may not have it right, but I'm I'm pretty sure there's a story there. And so right, right, yeah. right. Well, I thank you for coming on tonight. I really appreciate it. Thanks and for having me again. On again. Great mean, you're great to talk to. So if you're Thanks. willing to come on again, we'll get you back on. Definitely. I'm working on another book now, so I'll, I'll circle back to you when we're done. Okay. And I was just going to ask you, what's next for you? So I'm working on something called the, uh, it's a it's a book about something called the Shamir. Mm -hmm. We're snakes. So the Shamir is a little worm. If you, if you read the Talmud, which is the commentary on the Torah, it mm -hmm. talks about how when King Solomon wanted to build his temple, God said, you cannot use metal tools because we're worried they were once weapons. And this is a house of peace, not war. And so Solomon captures a demon who shows him where this magic worm is. And the worm can cut stone without making any noise. This is all in the Talmud, the magic worm. So we have snakes, now we got a worm. It's called the Shamir, but no one knows where the Shamir went. So oh, we had this that's magic cool. worm, but in Freemasonry, one of the main rituals talks about how the, the first master of Freemasonry is killed. One of the reasons he got killed is because the, the, the workers wanted the passwords that allowed him to get higher wages. Mm -hmm. But a, an alternative version is the workers wanted the magic worm, the Shamir. And of course the, the, the workers, the, uh, the first master mason 
is a Phoenician. This goes back to the Phoenicians. Mm -hmm. So did the Phoenicians somehow end up with the Shamir, which is what that allowed them to be so technologically advanced and build massive things like Baalbek, which is a crazy construction thing in Lebanon. And anyway, so I get into all that stuff, but it starts not with the snake, but with the worm. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And how can people find you, sir? DavidBrodyBooks.com, B-R-O-D-Y, uh, is my website. Uh, the easiest thing is to get my books off of Amazon. They're, uh, make them affordable, like 15 bucks for the paperback, less mm -hmm. than five bucks for the Kindle. The first six of them are on audiobooks. Um, just go to Amazon. I, again, my idea is I, I want to make them for, I want to make people have fun with it. Hopefully it goes through the whole series, uh, but that's the easiest way to get them. And then also please reach out to me. A, if you have comments about the books and B, especially B, if you have ideas, if you have artifacts or sites in your backyard, stuff that you think would be fun. Um, I love to write about things that I know about and the way I find out oftentimes is through my readers. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, David. I appreciate it. And it's, it's always fun to have you. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Right. Have a good evening, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That was interesting. I saw you guys light up in the chat room. So it's always fun to have him on. Every time he comes on, I learn something new. I mean, it's just fantastic. And like I said, I'm a major history buff. So this is huge for me. Tomorrow night, okay? Um be sure to be here 6.30 p.m. Pacific. If I say this guy's name wrong, you know how I am about names. Doug Hashisek. H-A-J-I-C-E-K. You guys can do your research. Is going to be with us. He is a producer for Discovery. And he's produced several. If you read his profile on, 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 on the uh, teaser for all this, he's produced several Discovery specials. He's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. And we're going to be talking about science of bigfoot okay he believes that um scientists should take a harder look at, at bigfoot that you know more science should be applied towards the towards the whole bigfoot thing so he's going to be with us at 6 30 tomorrow so be sure on that that's 6 30 pacific okay um i thank you guys for coming tonight i really appreciate it again if you're watching from facebook and you like the show hit that share button or hit that share button yeah you can hit the share button that'll work too hit that share button or hit that follow button because we're always looking for followers on Facebook. If you're watching from YouTube, again, hit that hit that little uh, ghost down there with the magnifying glass and the Sherlock Holmes hat on because that will subscribe you to our YouTube channel. As you can tell, we don't always talk about ghost stuff. We talk about stuff like this. We talk about, excuse me, we talk about murders. We talk about all kinds of stuff. So, you know, there's something there for everybody. So just check, out, check that out. Plus, we got the website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com. And I'm just about done categorizing all of our blog talk shows because we just haven't been doing this show. This is going to be, we're starting our third, third, third season on this show, but we've been on the air almost 20 years doing this show. All right. It started out on blog talk radio where it was all audio three years ago. We switched to this format. So we've been doing this for a while. So we got a bunch of shows that you guys can check out. So that's going to be probably another couple weeks on the, uh, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, and that's all going to be there. Everything's going to be logged. You can click on there and get to our links on Blog Talk. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. Also, it gets the word out. No matter whether it goes to your enemy or goes or goes wherever, it gets the word out. And we're trying to get the word out more and more. Okay? Uh, you see that thing flashing at the bottom? That's because California Haunts Paranormal Team doesn't charge to investigate or anything. Everything is done out of our pockets. And since I, since I own and run everything, it comes out of my pocket. And it does come out of my investigators' pockets when they travel back and forth or if they buy equipment. Something breaks down for the main team, and I have to pay for it. So it comes out of my pocket again, right? Or like doing the show, mics, computers, lights, cameras, whatever. If something breaks, it's got to be replaced and cha-ching for me, right? Just like I pay for the electricity bills, I'm paying for the internet bills here you know, to keep the show going. If you could help me out a little bit, that would be great. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can do that at Venmo and then type in California Haunts. But do look for us. If you if you have a TikTok account, check us out on TikTok. It's Calif that's California Haunts over at TikTok. We're also, on, well, I'm also over at uh, Instagram and I am Ghosty Gal on Instagram. So that's Ghosty Gal, all right? And also Twitter, it's Cal Haunts on Twitter. So we are everywhere. 
So anyway, I want to thank you guys, and I will show you his info his contact information and where to get his books. And then I'm going to sign off here. Let me get up here. Make sure I hit the right button. There we go. Where's the button? There it is. And make sure I hit the right button. And then I'm going to sign off, and I will see you guys tomorrow. I'm going to do I'm going to do a little bit of work for uh, TikTok tonight with the show, and uh, I'm going to be posting over there very shortly. Plus, we also have, and for those of you that would like to hear the show again and maybe don't want to watch the video part of it, we also uh, feed into an RSS feed, which sends us to Apple, iHeartRadio, and all you know, all, all, all the major um, podcast sites. So you can check us out that way, too. Like maybe you're driving or something, and you just want to listen while you're driving. Um, I actually have friends that do that. So, uh, yeah, you can check us out at all the major podcast sites. Just type in California Haunts Radio. The only thing i got to warn you with Apple is the old version that we have over on, which is good for you guys, from Blog Talk is also on there. So you'll just have to, you know, check out the um, segment just to see which version you have, okay? Because one version's there and the other version's there. All right, anyway, I'm going to shut up now, and here's, here's the ending stuff for you. Okay, website, davidbrodybooks.com. And this current book is The Serpent Oracle by David S. Brody. And David S. Brody, um, i trying to read these. West for Night. I'm not going to attempt it. I can't see that far. <laughs> so you can just get to kind of look at these. Romerica. Fascinating book, Romerica. That was what we had him on the last time. The Swagger Sword. Echoes of Atlantis, Turtle Island, Cult of Venus, Unlawful Deeds. So check them all out at Amazon, like he says. Okay? And again, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific for Doug Hatchacek. I said it right. And uh, for the science of Bigfoot. See you tomorrow, guys. Have a good one.